Well, dear friends, would you take your copy of the Scripture and turn with me to the book of Acts and chapter 11. We're at the very end of Acts chapter 11. And we're going to read verses 27 through chapter 12 and verse 5. Well, before we read God's holy word, let's ask the Lord to enlighten our eyes with His truth. Would you pray with me? Lord our God, You tell us in the Scripture that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from Your mouth. So Lord, help us to listen and receive as needy children being fed with the bread of life. Grant to us ears to hear and hearts that receive Your Word. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, if you're able, for the reading of Scripture? Again, Acts 11, starting in verse 27. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Excuse me, this is God's Word. Brethren, please be seated. Well, as I mentioned in Sunday school this morning, I'm still overcoming some crud, so y'all bear with me. I can speak, and it will be better than last time, I think. Well, here in Acts chapter 11, as we come this week in our study, we've we've been watching the ever-expanding growth of the church. And yet, as we've seen that, we've seen Satan strike with the stoning of Stephen and the ravaging of Saul before he was converted in Acts 7 and 8. But in their grief, the believers, those scattered, went about gossiping the gospel all over the Mediterranean basin, even in the city of Antioch. And in the providence of God, we're watching the Lord overturn Satan's schemes and bring salvation to even more people. So while Satan is raging, he ultimately fails. Now, this is a great message you knew before you came in, I hope, that the devil is the great loser. Satan knows he will fall. Revelation 12 tells us that by means of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, the devil has been thrown down. His dominance is driven back by the prevailing kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. However, though Satan knows he's lost and he's doomed, 
that old dragon doesn't just mope off into the darkness, kicking the dust and pouting. No, Revelation 12, 17 reminds us that the devil is furious. And he takes out that fury on the people of God. We see that in our text. We see Satan making war against those clinging to Christ. And we've noted in Acts the interplay multiple times between church growth and Satan's attacks. In fact, we could call our section with a nod to Star Wars, Satan Strikes Back. Now, not every trouble in the fallen world is directly tied to Satan's schemes. Sickness or calamity may not be a specific serpentine tactic. God sends these things for His own purposes, but the devil is always ready, isn't he? To use hardship to provoke unbelief when trouble comes in a cursed world. And trouble is exactly what we have in this passage. Now, I'm entitling the sermon, More Trouble, because it's parallel to the more growth we saw last time. But as we consider this abounding trouble, I want you to think with me about Paul's great declaration, really a question, in Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's actually the fourth who question in Romans 8. And the who, singular, no doubt has the devil in mind. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer, of course, is no one. But Paul mentions specific, particular, possible separators. Persecution, distress, famine, tribulation, nakedness, danger, or sword. And of these seven things that could possibly separate us from the love of Christ, three of them are in this little text that we're considering. And those are famine, the sword, and persecution. So we're going to think about these three threats to the church. So see firstly with me the threat of famine in Acts 11, 27-29. In the midst of this great blessing at Antioch, where the grace of God is abounding, sinners are being converted, saints are edified, suddenly a threat comes on the horizon in verse 27. Now in these days, the very days that Barnabas and Saul were preaching for a year, prophets came down to Antioch from Jerusalem. Now if you know anything about ancient geography, you will remember perhaps that Antioch is 300 miles to the north of Jerusalem. And how can it be that they come from the south down? Well, in elevation, Antioch is about 2,000 feet below the city of Jerusalem. So it's a march down even though it's a march north. That's why Luke says this. And the ministry of one prophet really rises to prominence here. A man named Agabus, verse 28, he stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. Now, before we deal with the famine, let me make some brief comments about prophets in the New Testament. I'm telling you in advance, this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's something that people wonder about. This is the first time that Luke has mentioned any prophets, a group who are clearly distinct from the apostles. But the New Testament will mention prophets like this. Paul particularly will talk about the office slash gift of prophet in Romans, Corinthians, and Ephesians. 
And there's been a tremendous amount of controversy in church history about these New Testament prophets. Is prophecy in the New Covenant different than prophecy in the Old Covenant? Or the bigger question, do prophets continue today? Well, let me try to quickly answer. First, it's obvious in verse 28 that Agabus, as a prophet, like Old Testament prophets, declares a matter by the Spirit. Do you see that in verse 28? He declares it by the Spirit. This was not an internal feeling. This wasn't a hunch. It was a revelation of the Spirit. The Spirit of God spoke to Agabus in a similar way that the Spirit of God had spoken to Peter in Acts chapter 10 and told him to go to Cornelius' house. However, here with Agabus, the Spirit is speaking so as to direct or declare the future. That's also a point of similarity with Old Testament prophets. God revealed the future to them. Now, prophecy isn't exclusively telling the future, what's called foretelling. It's also something called forthtelling, declaring the word. But it definitely has that component of telling the future. And Agabus has been told by the Spirit that a great famine is coming over all the world, that is, the known or inhabited world. That's the sense of the Greek. And we're talking here about the Roman Empire. But back to our question. Is prophecy in the New Covenant like prophecy in the Old Covenant? Yes, on two levels. One, it's a revelation of the Spirit. No prophecy is by man's own interpretation. And then second, it reveals the future. Now the harder question, does this office of prophet continue today? The short answer is no. Paul says, Ephesians 2.20, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. In other words, the Spirit's revealing work through the apostles and prophets, this New Testament prophets, lays a foundation built upon Christ as the cornerstone. Now, we're not all master builders, and some of us are not even mechanically inclined. That would be me. But we probably know how many times you lay a foundation, at least if you're a good builder, and don't accuse Jesus who builds His church of being a bad builder. How many times do you lay a foundation? Once. Apostles and prophets were therefore unique. A foundation laying for the church. They are gifts confined to a period of time to lay a foundation. And as we look throughout the Bible of the establishment of perpetual offices for the church, as we go from the apostolic era with Paul to the next generation with Timothy and beyond, as we go read the pastoral epistles, what offices does Paul mention that are perpetual for the church? And then he gives criteria for these offices. Not apostle, not prophet. He speaks of two perpetual offices, though. Do you remember what they are? Elder and deacon. And then he gives the qualifications for them because these are the enduring offices for the church. Apostle and prophet cease. They are unique, temporary, foundation-laying. Now, again, I know this is a tangent of sorts, but I thought it really important, especially in our present day, with folks claiming to be prophets, with people trying to argue for a different prophecy 
than what we see in the Bible. I thought it would be necessary to kind of spell this out. Well, back to the word through the Spirit-directed prophet in our passage, a famine is coming. Now, if we study famines in the Bible, we frequently see they're associated with the judgment of God. The Lord afflicts the disobedient with a famine. But that famine impacts the godly. So the Lord also has a pattern of telling the faithful, like Joseph in Egypt, or like Elijah in Israel, that a famine is coming, and then providing for them. Now, why would God be sending a judgment of famine here? Well, Luke doesn't tell us. But he does report to us, notice explicitly he tells us, verse 28, that this predicted famine took place in the days of Claudius. Don't let that comment slip past you. What the prophet said by the Spirit came to pass. What does that mean? At least two things. Number one, God's direction by His Spirit can be trusted. What God says is going to happen, happens. Now, I've just argued that there are no more future-telling prophets. But beloved, Scripture has recorded for us a number of prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Jesus' return, final judgment, days of lasting peace, These are not vain wishes. They are sure declarations of the Word of God, and our God always keeps His Word. Not one word of all of God's promises, all of His declared intentions, will fall to the ground. What God speaks, that He fulfills. And it should settle our souls in the days of trouble. Well, in this case, Agabus prophesied at Antioch just a couple of years historically before Egypt in A.D. 45, the breadbasket of the Roman Empire had a wretched crop producing vast grain shortages. How do we know that? Both Roman and Jewish sources write about it historically. And it caused a widespread famine touching Judea for the next couple of years. History is confirming a prophecy of God. History also confirms the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what God says, He brings to pass. And as He governs even the difficult things of life, we are seeing that the troubles of this world are not outside the sovereignty of God. So God keeps His Word. But there's a second thing to notice here because this prophecy is fulfilled. And it's this. Agabus is a real prophet. Agabus is a real prophet. God's prophets are not like baseball players. They're really good if they fail only 70% of the time. Now that's going to be lost and some of you are not baseball fans. But you get in the Hall of Fame if you hit 300, which means you fail 70% of the time. Well, God's prophets are not like that. They have to have a 100% success rate. Deuteronomy 18, if a dude claims to declare God's Word and the Word doesn't come to pass, then the Lord didn't give that Word. Folks claim to be prophets today, but when what they say doesn't happen 100% of the time, it means they're a false prophet. In the Old Testament, if you were a phony prophet, you got whacked. It's a serious thing to say that you speak for the Lord and get it wrong. Well, back to the situation here. There's a famine raging 
about to be, in the reign of Claudius. Claudius is the Roman emperor from A.D. 41 to 54. He took the throne after his predecessor Caligula was assassinated. And the Roman Empire is abounding with evil. It's in a state of distress. God, it appears, is bringing judgment on the empire. And there were famines, history tells us, in Claudius's reign in year 1, 2, 4, 9, and 11. That's a lot of trouble. And that doesn't even mention the earthquakes and the coups and the other massive problems during this time. If, as C.S. Lewis put it, pain is God's megaphone to get the world's attention, then things like a famine are God's judgment to wake the world up and lead us to repentance. However, like in Old Testament times, here the Lord, by the Spirit, tells a prophet it's coming before it happens to the church that the church might be directed in the midst of a broken world receiving God's judgment. And yet we would recognize as a Christian, a time of famine is a threat to believing people. Haven't we seen that already in the Bible with Abraham or Jacob and his family or Elijah and others? God's love for us doesn't mean we'll never face hard things. We'll never get caught up in the judgment that He's bringing on pagan nations and godless rulers. On the contrary, Romans 8 promises that problems like famine will not separate us from God's love. It doesn't tell you you'll never experience a famine. It says in the famine, you can't be cut off from the love of Christ because trouble is normative for the Christian. The normal Christian life is life of trouble in a fallen world. And in that trouble, we might not only fail or struggle to submit to God's sovereignty to embrace the hard providence, we might face real problems. What happens in a famine? Well, food and thereby money become scarce. Try to put yourself in the first century. It, it's hard. But there wasn't a fridge where you could go get more turkey. Stuff ran out. And, and that means there's great hardship for the saints. And in that hardship, what do you think Satan is going to do? He's going to promote a to thine own self be true mentality. Ditch this whole family idea in the church and you need to take care of yourself. Am I my brother's keeper? Satan would stir up unbelief, anxiety, selfishness. However, brethren, in the face of that threat, what does the church at Antioch do? They put to death the native sins of the heart and they demonstrate in hardship that they are real Christians. Verse 29 this massive group of converted Gentiles under the ministry of two Jews, Barnabas and Saul, they determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. They didn't think for themselves, man, too bad for them. Sorry about the famine down there. Oh, those poor people in Jerusalem. But, you know, they're Jews, we're Greeks. We're going to take care of our own stuff. They're hundreds of miles away from us. We don't even know them. So we're going to take care of us. No, they received the gospel through the work of God in Jerusalem. And now they see themselves as fellow Christians with the people there. Note particularly in verse 29, the word brothers. 
Antioch and Jerusalem, they might as well be on the other side of the world from one another. In this culture, it would take about a week to travel to this city from one spot or the other. But because they share Christ, they determine to share everything. Satan provides an opportunity for selfishness, but the saints at Antioch show they are sincere Christians. They're like the church in Jerusalem back in Acts chapter 4, sharing things in common, watching for needs, and giving liberally. Only here, and it's hard to remember this, but only here, brethren, the church is breaking ethnic barriers. It's not just fellow Jews caring for one another. Now it's Gentiles caring for the Jews. God has called these people through pagan witness Christians for the first time at Antioch. And they're acting like being a Christian is more important than any ethnicity. So they determined to send relief, a gift for the poor, through Barnabas and Saul. Take it to the elders in Jerusalem because we're grateful for those people and we love them. Now, as they take this relief gift, notice it's not a mandated matter. Barnabas and Saul, as Jews, don't get up and force the people to give to their people. They don't use manipulative tactics to help their friends back home. They don't get everybody's tax return and tell you what you're going to give. People give according to their ability. Do you see that in the text? That's an important thing to note. Because another thing Satan loves to do in trouble is to make some feel guilty for their inability to give and make other people boast of how much they are able to give. But here the church is giving proportionally according to one's ability. Now, that doesn't mean that the giving isn't sacrificial or significant. We give in view of Christ who gave Himself. And the love of Christ controls us as we give. But when we give, we consider what we can give. These people don't give so as to leave themselves with no ability to care for their own needs. They don't sell everything and take a vow of poverty. They steward their resources carefully and give all that they are able to give willingly and gladly. And dear friends, are these kind of motives driving us to give? We live in a materialistic world dominated by selfish ambition. But are we putting those things to death that we might care for our fellow believers? And not just believers here. Believers we don't even know across the world that we might care for needs. Do we think of the people of God as a family, the devil will do anything he can in trouble to squash a family feeling among us. But are we fighting to contend with the devil? To act like we are a connected people who are going to share eternity together in Christ? What do Christians do in trouble? They sacrifice for one another. Loved by Christ, they love one another. They give, they determine to serve. That's what Christianity looks like. And it's the fruit of the gospel in these pagans' hearts, that now they are a sacrificial people. Can that be said of us? Christ's love will never be severed to you in your difficulties. But will you sever your love to others? This church won't. Secondly, see with me. Not just the threat of famine, but the threat of sword. 
not only are the saints in Jerusalem facing the famine, verse 1, Luke tells us, about that time, Herod the king, by the way, this is the grandson of Herod the Great, who sent soldiers to slaughter babies in Bethlehem, and the son of Herod who beheaded John the baptizer and put Jesus under trial. This is a rotten family, and the apple doesn't fall far from the tree here. Herod laid violent hands on some who belong to the church. The sense is he laid his hands on to mistreat or bring harm to the people of God. Now, in this persecution, Luke doesn't tell us all the particulars, but he uses two verbs of violence that he's used in the past. In Acts 4 and 5, he talked about the religious leaders laying hands on the apostles to imprison them. And in Acts 7, twice in Stephen's sermon, Stephen talked about the assaults of Pharaoh on the children of Israel, leading to murder as they were throwing their babies in the Nile. Satan's fingerprints are all over the scene. Thus Herod, no doubt motivated by the devil, strikes to bring two problems, the sword and imprisonment. So we start with the sword. Herod attacks in verse 2 specifically. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now throughout the Gospels, among the apostolic band, we've heard about three guys in an ongoing way. Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. It's always Peter, James, and John. These were the closest companions to Jesus. They were the ones the Lord wanted with Him in the depths of the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus asked them, His dear friends, to keep watch with Him. But now, one of the great leaders of the early church, an apostle, is struck down, is slaughtered by a wicked leader. It is shocking. And it provokes questions. If James was so close to Christ, how could he be killed? Doesn't friendship with Jesus shelter you from that kind of trouble? Well, no, brethren, it doesn't any more than Jesus Himself escaped suffering. In fact, Jesus once told James and John on that memorable day when they got their mama to ask Jesus to give them special cred in heaven, make them, these brothers, sit on your right and on your left. And Jesus asked them, are you able to drink the cup that I will drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized? Jesus was talking about the cup of wrath that He would drink in the place of His people and the baptism as a flood of judgment from Psalm 69 that He would face because the path to glory is through suffering. Well, James and John, of course, are not going to suffer like Jesus suffered, but then shockingly, Jesus immediately told them in Mark 10, the cup that I drink, you will drink. Now, that's already happening to John the Apostle. He's been in prison multiple times. We know he'll be the only apostle that's not martyred, exiled on the Isle of Patmos. For John, the suffering was prolonged. For James... The suffering here is acute. He's cut down as a young man, perhaps scarcely 30 years old. And doesn't it appear to be a great victory for Satan? A mouthpiece of Jesus is muzzled. A very close companion of Christ Himself is killed. 
And doesn't the devil use the opportunity to provoke thoughts like this? If someone like James can meet the sword, is anyone safe? Better stop talking of Christ lest we all be killed. Is Christ really king when even His close friends are beheaded? Can we believe the Lord is good when good men are dying and evil men are flaunting their power and committing injustice? Can the church survive this kind of brutality? My friends, we're not facing in our country the level of violence against the church like this. But we should be clear that such things can and do happen. Service to Christ, even close communion with Jesus, is not a safety net from suffering. In fact, brethren, it's just the opposite. Jesus taught Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Peter will say later, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you for your testing as though something strange is happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in the sufferings of Christ. Or Paul will put it to the Philippians like this. It's been granted to you. Note that word grant. It's been gifted to you. Not only to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer for His sake. Anyone who wants to live godly for Christ Jesus, Paul says, will be persecuted. That's a promise. How did Jesus put it? In this world, you will have tribulation. It may not look like a sword cutting your head off, but you're going to have trouble. You're going to face hardship. And what is the hope of the believer in a season like that when even James is cut down? Well, what did Stephen see when he was stoned? Do you remember? He saw the Lord Jesus standing to receive him. When Stephen was dying, he had confidence that the Lord Jesus Christ would welcome him into heaven. Our future hope, however, does not nullify the ugliness of death, but it guts death of its power. Satan here through Herod is wielding a sword to intimidate. But what he can never do is take that sword and sever the believer's attachment to Christ. That, dear friends, is a thing that we need to remember in a world of trouble. Whether our death be a peaceful passing in our sleep or the violent assault of the sword to take off our heads, either way, death for us is gain. To depart and be with Christ is far better. For those who trust in Christ, who is the resurrection of the life, even though they die, Jesus says, they will live. So Satan's greatest weapon that he wields against us is the fear of death. But what has Jesus come to do? Jesus has come to defeat him who held the fear of death and to set us who were captive to death's fear at liberty. We don't have to tremble before the sword. Because that sword, whatever it may chop off, can't cut off our union with Christ. And while the church no doubt shed tears here when James and perhaps others fell, they know a day is coming when the Lord will wipe all those tears away. He will vindicate us. And therefore we persevere. 
But then the hits keep coming. The threat of famine, the threat of the sword, third we see, and finally the threat of persecution. The moment the blood of James falls to the ground, Herod noted it made the Jews happy. So he turned up the heat. Verse 3, And when he, Herod, saw that it pleased the Jews, that James' death pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. What wickedness we're seeing here. The Jews, just as they did with Jesus, are delighting in the death of a man who told them the truth. These Jews weren't the executioners of Jesus. They're not the executioner of James. But it's obvious they have bloodlust in their hearts. They are violent, vengeful men. These men with the Scriptures are so blind, they're so hardened in heart, that they actually rejoice in seeing the righteous, even preachers of the Word of God, cut down. This should remind you of two passages of Scripture. John 8, Jesus is having a conversation with the Jewish leadership who are insisting, our father's Abraham. And Jesus says, no, he isn't. Your father's the devil, and you delight to do his deeds. Or, 1 John 3, which is referring back to Genesis 4, to the Cain-Abel saga. Why did Cain kill Abel? 1 John 3 says, Cain killed Abel because his brother's deeds were righteous. He just killed him because he didn't like the guy who was righteous. And it also says Cain was of the evil one. Cain and Herod and these Jews are folks in whom the devil is working. And he provokes them to hate righteousness, to hate the light, to hate the truth. They would rather see people's heads chopped off than repent of their sin. What striking evil this is. And brethren, these are people, these Jews, who have God's Word, who say prayers, who go to worship, who sing the psalms. Don't underestimate the deceit of sin and the hardness of men's hearts. What do you think can change people like this? I tell you, it won't be a good argument. It's only the power of God cracking the heart of stone and giving new life. But the hardness in our text is seen further with Herod who sets a trajectory for further bloodshed by arresting Peter. Now, why does he do that? Well, because he loves the smiles of men. Political leaders, note this well in our culture, brethren, political leaders may well delight in death, rejoice in tyranny, because it pleases bloodthirsty constituents. Don't think they have to be logical. Sin isn't logical. What we're seeing in the greater passage is the gospel is working and sinners are being saved and others are being hardened under that same message. Don't forget that. Don't have a triumphalistic view. If the gospel is preached to these people, they would all suddenly be saved. No, some are hardened under the Word of God. And let's make sure that isn't us. By bowing the knee to Christ and receiving His Word. Because while the kingdom is coming with power, Not everyone who hears Christ and His Word will listen. In fact, they may turn up their rage tenfold at the Gospel. Don't you see that here? And yet note what happens upon the arrest of Peter with death no doubt looming. Verse 4, 
And when he, Herod, had seized him, Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Now, doesn't this seem like overkill? Four squads of soldiers guarding one dude? Maybe Herod heard about the angelic jailbreak back in Acts chapter 5, and he wants to prevent it. Or maybe he's not thinking on a supernatural level at all. This is just an intimidation tactic to the believers. Maybe Herod is flexing his muscles as though to say to the church, I'm powerful and you are nothing. I can rip you to shreds. I can lay hold of your prominent leader and there's nothing you can do about it. Doesn't that sound like the kind of intimidation tactics of the devil? The devil, using men, often throws down the gauntlet as though there's no hope for us. That's what Herod is doing. The gospel's not going to advance on my watch. But will he win? Well, I'm going to leave you hanging here and come back next week. Because I want you to notice what the church does in the interim. Verse 5, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Trouble strikes, and the church calls a prayer meeting. How do we face trouble? We pray. How do we fight doubt and discouragement? With spiritual power. Prayer. They had a prayer meeting, like back in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John were in prison. And when they got out, they prayed not that persecution would stop, They prayed that boldness would be given proclaiming the word. It's similar here. They're not just praying all the persecution would stop, but it seems that they're focused on praying that Peter would be delivered. And at this point, notice the season when all this is unfolding. End of verse 4. This is happening during Passover, the season of unleavened bread, the feast. Why is that important? Well, two reasons perhaps. This was the same period of time in which Jesus had suffered. Peter, it seems, is tracing the steps of Jesus, sharing in the sufferings of Christ. But what do Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread celebrate? They celebrate, wouldn't you know it, God's miraculous deliverance of Israel from Satan-filled, violent Pharaoh and his hosts. The Lord rescued a people who were as good as dead. He gave them an exodus and brought them through the waters to safety. What happened with Jesus? Well, Jesus, Luke 9, had an exodus to accomplish at Jerusalem. He entered into the waters of death, but a miraculous deliverance occurred and He was raised. The church is praying to the God to whom belong deliverances from death. Satan is raging at them with fierce persecution, but they're remembering no weapon formed against us can prosper. And some, like James, may fall, but the Lord will not permit Satan to have perpetual victories. He may have a season of victory. That season, from our perspective, could go on a long time, but He will not prevail. So they commit themselves in prayer. What does it all mean here? Brethren, it means while the devil brings disasters to us, he shall not have dominion. Persecution may be fierce, But Satan cannot squash the church 
for the King, our King and Champion, hears when His people call and He will help them. Do you believe that? Do I see it? Do you see it in the way that you pray? There's not a verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt be at prayer meeting on Wednesday night. I recognize that. But do you see a pattern of when trouble strikes, the church comes together to corporately pray and how significant that is? What were they doing in Acts 2.42? Devoting themselves to prayer. What are they doing in Acts 4? When trouble strikes the church, they have a prayer meeting. What do they do in Acts chapter 12? When trouble strikes the church, they have a prayer meeting. Are we taking heed to seeing a pattern? This is really important. When trouble comes, when Satan strikes, when he intimidates and slanders and tempts and comes against us, do we corporately cry out to our God knowing that nothing shall separate us from God's love to us in Jesus Christ? Darkness may have its day. Weeping may last for the night. But joy, a shout of joy, comes in the morning. Brethren, let us face our trouble as Christians. What do Christians do? Christians serve one another. Christians don't despair in the face of death. They believe death is gain. And Christians pray. May we be found doing that in our trouble. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are a God who hears the cry of the afflicted, who opens Your ear and listens to Your people. And we thank You that in the face of all of the threats that come against us, that we know that Satan shall not prevail. Lord, help us therefore not to be overwhelmed by discouragement, not to doubt Your favor and Your goodness, but to submit to You even in the hardest of providences. Because, as we're about to sing, whatever You ordain is right. And we bow to You and trust You because of Your love to us and Your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name.